Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Gracious Father, we're giving you permission right now, just a green light to send us your Holy Spirit. We know that you've promised the spirit of truth to guide us into all truth. And so today we just want to claim that promise. Would you please give us spiritual understanding? Would you please quicken our hearts and minds, not just to, to hear ideas, but to receive truth, to receive your word. We thank you, Lord, for uh, those that are pressing together here, young and old, and um, for those who have gathered with us in our online space as well. And we just pray that your will would be done, that you would reveal Jesus to us in a special way. In Jesus' name we pray. Let everyone say, amen. Amen. All righty. Philippians chapter 2. If you're there, go ahead and say, I found it. Okay. Philippians 2. And what we're going to do today is we're actually looking at this concept of servanthood. And how, how does this actually fit into the larger picture of joy? The joy that Paul can be writing about and encouraging us about. And we're opening to Philippians 2. We're going to actually find three dynamics of servanthood. Three dynamics of servanthood in Philippians chapter 2. And the first one is the context of servanthood. The context of servanthood. So what's really interesting is that, you know, chapter 2, it comes right on the heels of chapter 1, obviously. But uh, when, you, when you look at chapter 1 and just let your eyes kind of scan the last few verses of chapter 1... Paul is, you know, he's encouraging the Philippian believers to, to stand strong, to let their conduct be worthy of, of the gospel, to stand together, to stand in this. Why is he encouraging this? It's because there is a lot of pressure to not stand. Right? They're, they're facing a lot of adversity. They're facing a lot of pressures to kind of give up on their faith. And so you, you see that there in verse 27, only let your, this is chapter 1, Philippians 1, verse 27, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now you go down to verse 29, notice it says, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to what? To suffer for his sake. Now, I don't know, I don't know how many of us would actually agree with Paul in this, that, that this is actually a gift. It's a gift, yes, it's a gift to believe in Christ. But it's also a gift that's been granted to you to, to suffer for Christ. Then Paul, Paul has this, this uh, otherworldly perspective, if you will. And he says in verse 30, he actually describes what kind of suffering they're facing. He says, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here is in me. If you remember what kind of suffering Paul experienced when he was in Philippi, you flip back to Acts chapter 16, man, this brother was, uh, he, he was beaten. He was persecuted for preaching in the name of Jesus, for healing people and giving them deliverance in the name of Jesus. He was persecuted and imprisoned because of it. And apparently some of the Philippian believers are experiencing the same conflict. That same kind of backlash. And Paul is saying, hey, this has been granted to you. This suffering, it's, it's actually a gift. And then in chapter 2, he picks up the theme of serving. He picks up the theme of servanthood, of humility, of putting others above yourself just like Jesus. 
And maybe you're scratching your head and you're thinking, well, that's, that's kind of an odd transition. You know, how would you go from the concept of, of suffering and then encouraging people to keep serving? You know, what, what's, what, what's going on there? Some have suggested that maybe Paul was, he was actually addressing a letter that came from the Philippians and he, you know, maybe there were questions that the Philippian believers were asking, and he's just kind of going down a checklist of things that he should hit on in his letter to them. And that there's no like, uh, really intended literary hole that he's, he has in mind. But I would submit that Paul is connecting some dots. <laughs> in fact, in chapter 2, what's the very first word in chapter 2, verse 1 in your Bible? Therefore, right? And whenever you see a therefore, you've got to ask, what's it there for? Right? <clears throat> when you see that, it should say, wait, wait, wait. What he's about to say is the natural outflow of what he already has said. Which tells me that Paul is connecting the dots that at first glance may not be easy to see. I would submit that Paul is actually making a bold connection between suffering and serving. Maybe a bold assertion, if you will that the context of Christian service is actually personal suffering. What? <laughs> In other words, even when I'm suffering, I can still be a servant. Or maybe we should say it like this, I should still be a servant. Even when life is crumbling around me, even when the people I'm trying to serve are not appreciative of that service. And there's kickback and backlash. That's when service is needed the most. So we're talking about dynamics of servanthood. I think Paul is, before he even like, addresses servanthood per se, he's giving us the context. The foundation of servanthood is that it's in the context of suffering and adversity. And I tell you, it's easy to, to pray that God would use us to be servants. It's easy to sing that song, Make me a servant. Humble and meek. It's easy to sing that when our cups are full. When we're financially resourced. And we feel like we have a lot to give. But what happens when we're struggling and tried and troubled? Can I still serve then? Should I still serve then? Paul says, therefore... Go for it, right? According to Paul, this is when we need to serve the most. Friends, we are living in a struggling world. We are living in a world that is troubled. Uh, the headlines over the last couple of weeks, as we were already praying about, uh, this world is falling apart at the seams, yeah? And we, you know, we, we can watch, we can experience this and just crumble ourselves. But no, I believe this is the time when it's needed most. A demonstration of sacrificial love. A demonstration of a life of service, even in the midst of suffering. I remember several years back, I, was, I just felt impressed to call a former church member of mine from a previous church. And uh, by the time I left that church in California, uh, this gentleman, his name was Steve, really amazing individual. He had just been baptized, I think, like around the, the last Sabbath of my, my time at that church. And he had taken a stand for the Sabbath, right? 
his employer, he was an operations manager for a large uh, strawberry uh, plant um, <clears throat> there in California. And his, his employer actually just, yeah, wouldn't honor his desire to keep the Sabbath. And so he was unemployed by the time I left. When I called him, like three years, probably three years later, he was still unemployed. Still. And I remember just feeling impressed to call him, and I caught him while he was, um, he was out weeding his garden, <laughs> or his, his front lawn. And, uh, you know, normally this guy, Steve, he, he was just such a man of humility and steadiness, you know. Like when, I, when he knew that he was going to lose his job, he, he was still talking faith, you know. He wouldn't let doubt and uncertainty uh, even just come out of his lips. Anyways, when I called him, this was like three years after the fact. And Steve, he's weeding his garden, and he's so thankful that I called because he was feeling discouraged. And he's thinking to himself, why? Why is this happening? I am just trying to honor God, right? Uh, I, I want to get beyond this, this struggle. I want to get beyond trying to figure out where, where our next meal is coming from. I want to get beyond the struggle of taking care of ourselves. Didn't God promise that when we seek his kingdom first, all these things will be added unto us? I mean, these are the things that were coming from Steve's heart. And, you know, I was doing my best to, to encourage and to cheer um, and to let him think out loud. And that's exactly what the Holy Spirit did in that moment as we were there on the phone together. I remember he, he, he kind of dropped his tool and he said, you know what, maybe that's it. Maybe that's what God is calling me to do. And he's, you know, he's kind of counseling himself in this moment. And, and he says, I, I need to start looking for ways to help others. I need to start, I need to start uh, you know, putting myself in a position of servanthood. And, and out of that, you know, maybe God will bless. Well, even if he doesn't, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to stay committed to just being a blessing to others. He's going to carry me through no matter what. <laughs> And that was incredible to me, that in the midst of his personal suffering, in the midst of his adversity where he didn't know the way out, he just concluded, look, I've been trying to find my way out, but what I need to focus on is how to help others find their way out. And that's the thing, when, when struggles come our way, when difficulties and even persecution come our way, we start asking questions, we start, you know, asking if and in chapter 2, verse 1, when you start reading, that's kind of how Paul starts, right? He says, therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, and maybe he was anticipating that the Philippian believers had been asking these kinds of if questions. Man, if all this stuff is happening, is there really any consolation in Christ? Is there really any value in belonging to him if, if I don't have any belongings myself? And that's what happens. Seasons of adversity and extremity may cause us to question, are there bright spots in actually following Jesus? And I believe that the answer is a resounding yes, right? It's a resounding yes. And what Paul is writing here is, is similar to what Steve, my friend, came to realize over the phone, that sometimes the best way to recover that, that consolation the best way to recover that sense of uh, fellowship of the Spirit, of affection and mercy that God has my, back, my, has my back, is not necessarily or not primarily focusing on how to get myself out of the rut, but shifting my focus 
on how to lift up others out of theirs. You follow me today, yes or no? Yeah? And so Paul's appeal, if you keep reading in uh, chapter 2, verse 2, says, Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. You get the idea. Well, what is Paul's appeal? Is it an appeal to just some generic sense of unity, of, of one mind, group think that will just kind of make all the problems disappear or feel like they're not there anymore? No, I don't think that's what he's appealing to. He's appealing to have a certain kind of mind and all of us being on the same page with that kind of mind. So what is that kind of mind? That's what we'll get to in the second dynamic, the mind of servanthood. So we've talked about the context of servanthood, and that is suffering and adversity, that even in the midst of of our troubles, we can be a blessing and give our lives for others. Now, the mind of servanthood, Paul will go on in the next few verses to basically spell it out, the mind of servanthood. Now, and I want to address this first, that when we're talking about the mind of servanthood, Paul doesn't want us to just go through the motions of serving others. You know, he doesn't want us just to go through the motions outwardly of doing nice things, doing things that will be a blessing for others. But servanthood actually is an outward life that comes from a certain kind of mindset. You follow me? Yeah? It's an outward life that comes from an inward attitude, a certain kind of perspective. In fact, the word for mind, having one mind, And then in verse 3, lowliness of mind. And then in verse 5, let this mind be in you. That word mind, it's it's actually the root word that we get. Let's see, it's phroneo. And it's the root word of of things like diaphragm. Okay? It's, It's talking about that internal thing that regulates your outward life. Like when your diaphragm contracts, it it lowers and then it expands things on a visible level and it causes a chain reaction of things. And so when you've got a certain mind, it's an inward thing, it's an inward perspective that creates outward behaviors. Yeah. So what is this mind? What is this servanthood mind that starts from the inside and works its way out? In verses 3 and 4, Paul spells it out. You've got it there. It says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. (laughs) When you're talking about what kind of internal attitude creates a life of servanthood, it's, it's right there. It's, it's, it's the complete opposite of selfish ambition. It's the complete opposite of, of grasping for things for myself, by myself, in my own power. Right? It's the complete opposite of vainglory and conceit. In fact, it's a mindset that is completely foreign to this world. Right? It is completely foreign. And, and really, we need models to illustrate it. And on a, on a weekend like Memorial Day weekend, we can think of fallen soldiers, individuals who have trained, who have given all for their country. And that models for us, that allows us to have some sort of concept of people giving their lives for others' freedom and safety. But even those 
Even those heroes fall short of the ultimate example. And that ultimate example of this mind, this mind of servanthood, it's in Jesus, right? So in verse 5, 5, 6, 7, 8, let's keep reading. It says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now notice, as we keep reading, there's an inside-out dynamic, the inside attitude that shows up or manifests itself in outward actions. Here's the inside part. Verse 6, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. In other words, when it came to his divine identity, that wasn't something Jesus stole from God. No, no, no. That, that's who he was, right? Yeah, that wasn't robbery for him. In fact, we could also say that it wasn't, uh, it wasn't robbery in the sense that he wasn't trying to cling to that identity. He didn't feel like he had to defend that identity or grasp it. That was just something he was. That's who he was. And that was his, his mind, right? But then verses 7 and 8 show how that mind demonstrated itself in the life. Verse 7, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Wow. So his divine identity, however real it was, it wasn't something that he felt he needed to grasp for. It wasn't something that he needed to cling to or get clingy about and defensive about. But what he did cling to was our humanity. Right? In verse, where was it? In verse 8, in being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So let's not stop there. He didn't just cling and take humanity. He, he clung to humility. And that humility led him to obedience. And that obedience led him to obedience to the point of death, even the death on a cross. You want to know what servanthood looks like? That's what servanthood looks like. Yeah? And the result of that mind that showed up in action in verses 9 through 11 says, therefore, so as a consequence or because of all of this, God has, excuse me, verse 9, therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. I just love this, okay? So in, in Philippians 2, you've got this downward trajectory of Jesus, like, you know, he is God. But he doesn't need to cling to that. He's going to cling to you and me. He's going to cling to our humanity. And he's going to be, cling to humility. He's going to cling to obedience. He's going to cling to obedience of death on a cross. And because of this, God highly exalts him. And you, you notice that this downward mobility actually results in not himself exalting himself, but God doing it for him. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. This is the king. And this is the complete opposite of the way this world operates. 
I mean, you, you do a quick cross-reference to Isaiah chapter 14. Yes. Man, Isaiah chapter 14, which, which puts a magnifying glass on the heart of that rebellious angel Lucifer. You remember this? Lucifer, he said, I will exalt myself above the stars of God. I will exalt my throne above, above the, the mount of the congregation. All these things. I will, I will. And he, Lucifer, is trying to go upward in and of himself, for himself. But Jesus shows us a completely different way. Amen. Where Lucifer's rebellion led him to be cast out of heaven, Jesus' humility led him to be exalted. This is Jesus. That's my king. Yeah. And so you're talking about servanthood. Paul is talking about servanthood. He's giving us the context of it. It's not just when life is easy. It's especially when life is hard. He's talking about the mind of it. It's something internal. An identity that is so secure that it shows up in a life of humility. And then the third dynamic that he shares with us is actually the joy of servanthood. Maybe you're, you're thinking to yourself, <laughs> I don't necessarily associate servanthood and humility with joy. But could, could Paul be doing this for us? Yeah, I believe he is. Actually, you go back to verse 2 of the same chapter. Chapter 2, verse 2. He says, fulfill or bring to the full, complete my joy. How? By being like-minded. In other words, being of the same mind of Christ. Being of that servant's mind. <laughs> Apparently, having this same mind brings Paul's joy to the full. And I would submit that it brings God's joy to the full and our joy to the full as well. You know, last week, I had mentioned this earlier, last week we were concluding that joy is based on Jesus, not like happiness being based on happenings. And I, I, would, <laughs> I was realizing that, you know, maybe that idea of, you know what, I, I'll have joy no matter what goes on around me, no matter who is around me. Maybe that idea of joy being based on Jesus could lead to the unhealthy extreme that joy um, has no relation to the people around us. That joy is experienced in complete isolation with Jesus. Just me and him. That's all. And yes, while that is true to some extent, it's not the fullest picture. Okay, so I wanted to kind of clarify that joy really actually has an interpersonal dy dynamic to it. Okay, that's why Paul is telling them, hey, you can complete my joy. You can fulfill my joy by being of this kind of mind. So I want us to explore just for a little bit the, the relational or interpersonal factor to joy. And, and Let's be clear, this is not basing joy on whether or not people like me. Because not everybody's going to like me. <laughs> not everybody's, I hope, hate to break that to you. It's just, <laughs> not everybody's going to like you or treat you well or satisfy your needs when you hope they will. You see, I mean, that's why we see Paul rejoicing even when he's beaten. That's how he can rejoice in the Lord always. And again, he says rejoice even when he's imprisoned. So this interpersonal factor of joy, what do we mean by that? Well, it's joy that comes from me treating others well, not necessarily when others treat me well. Subtle shift, yeah? 
It's a joy that comes from me choosing to serve others' needs, etc. So I hope we recognize that the relational component of joy is not whether I'm on the receiving end of the interpersonal benefit, but whether I'm on the giving end of it. Yeah. Actually, go with me. Hold a finger here in Philippians 2. Go with me to John chapter 15. John 15. Yes, please make sure to put a bookmark because we are coming back to this. This is one of those chapters that really spells out joy for me. John 15. Jesus just has a few hours left with his disciples. And he is walking uh, from the upper room, likely to the Garden of Gethsemane. And on the way, they they see some vine branches, and Jesus stops to just give them some wisdom. He knows that he's about to depart. He wants their connection with him to to stay strong. And so, if you're there in John 15, go ahead and say amen. Amen. Okay. Now, in verse 11, in verse 11, he he knows the disciples' hearts are heavy, but he's going to give them a recipe for joy here. It says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may what? Remain in you. I love that. And that your joy may be full. So not just partially, but completely fully. It's a beautiful promise. So again, Jesus is saying, hey, these things I've spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, that your joy may be full. The question we should ask is, well, what sayings, what was he saying that would factor into this full joy? That would factor into this abiding, very sticky and enduring joy. Well, you look in the rest of the chapter, you start scanning what Jesus had already said. He was talking about abiding in the vine. Like a branch abides to the vine. Hey, stay connected to me. Yeah? Abiding in the vine, abiding in his word. He even talks about abiding in his love. I think it's in verse 9. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. This is that joy that's based on Jesus, right? This is the joy that's based on Jesus, the joy that I can have when Jesus is everything and everything else is nothing. That's a recipe for joy, but it's not the only part of the recipe. Immediately after verse 11, notice what he says. This is my commandment. This is verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. So immediately after, he says, okay, uh, I want my joy to remain in you that your joy may be complete. This is why I'm talking to you right now. And then he goes on to explain the commandment to love one another with a sacrificial, life-giving love. A willingness to give our lives for others' benefit. In other words, that willingness, that willingness to love all the way to the end, all the way to, to put others' interests above your own, that willingness to give ourselves and to give of ourselves for others, that's what makes our joy full too. Did you follow that? Yes or no? Yeah. So there's really two factors. Two factors to this, uh, this idea of complete joy, of full joy. It's found in two things. One, satisfaction entirely in Jesus, abiding in him, right? But also service and sacrifice for others. That's Jesus' recipe for full abiding joy. Maybe you're asking yourself, man... That, that's nice. That 
sounds good, but how does that even happen? <laughs> like, that, that mind of servanthood, how do I even have that in me? I, I, can't, I can't do that. So can we get a little bit more practical? Come on, preacher. No, no, no. I, I don't have the answers here. Paul, Paul has to break this down for us, okay? So let's go back. Go back to Philippians chapter 2 here. Does he give us some indicator as to how this mind becomes our reality too? I would submit that he does in the subsequent verses. So you're going there. Back to chapter 2. When you're there, say, I'm there. Okay, here we go. Philippians 2. There are some really cool how-tos here. All right, verse 12. He says, therefore, all right, again, he's kind of drawing some conclusions now. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. And then I'm going to pause the sentence right there. I think that's probably one of the first practical tips. When you're talking about how to become a servant, let it be more than just a show. Right? He says, hey, as you've always obeyed, not just when I'm there, not just when I'm aware, not just when I'm watching, but even when nobody else is looking, even when there's no sense of recognition or appreciation, let it be more than just a show. When you're talking about how do I become a servant, well, don't just do it so others will appreciate you. Okay? That, that's a starting point. Let it be more than just a show. But then the rest of verse 12 says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Whoa. So here's the second how-to. Don't just make it a show, but also work out God's salvation. Now, this is, this is something we need to chew on just a little bit. <laughs> because you're thinking, work, salvation. Wait, 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 wait. There's some dissonance there, right? <laughs> now, he's not saying work for your salvation. He's saying let God's salvation be worked out. The word here for work out uh, your own salvation, it actually has an emphasis. Um, oh boy, how do, how do we describe this? The emphasis of that action is not on the drive of the work, but the result of the work. So working it out to its full intended result. Yeah? Which tells me a couple of things here. That one, the work of salvation in us is more than sometimes we even realize. That it needs to be worked out to a full extent. That sometimes we stop short of that full extent. Let me say it like this. A lot of times we, we uh, limit the work of God's grace in us to simply clearing our conscience of guilt. But no. There's more to grace. The work or the salvation that we should let be worked out in our lives is more than just clearing our conscience of guilt, but actually transforming our mind to think like Christ. That's the, that's the full end. That's the end result, right? In other words, we are saved to serve. And when we let God's salvation be worked out in our lives, when we start letting that sink in, we also realize that, whoa, whoa then becoming a servant, this idea, like, okay, how do I become like Jesus? How do I serve like Jesus? That is not my work. That is God's work. It is a work of grace. And that's why we need to work it out with fear and trembling, with a sense of humility rather than frivolity. 
Not with a casual assumption, ah, yeah, someday it'll work itself out. No, 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 no. It's, a, it's not just a simple switch to flip. It's a divine work to allow, to seek, to pray for, and let God have access to our hearts and minds. That's why, uh, verse 13, the, the subsequent idea, that the rest of the sentence really reminds us where the power really lies. So let's go there. So I'll start in verse 12. So we hear the whole sentence all the way to the end of verse 13. Therefore, my beloved brethren, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is who? For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Yes. <laughs> okay. I don't know. Maybe, maybe you're hearing this appeal to have the mind of servanthood and you're, you're trying to apply it in your life. Okay. I know that I am not thinking like that. I know that my attitude is far from that. So how do I make that happen in my own life? How, how do I live that out in my own marriage, in my own relationships, in my own neighborhood or workplace or classroom? This is how. It's God's work. Okay. And so keep clinging to these. There are two assurances right here in verse 13. Keep clinging to assurance number one, that it is all by God's power. Yeah. For it is God who works in you. That's awesome. The word there for work, it, it, it's energeo. It's, it's the word that we get for energy. Okay? He's the one giving the energy. What we're allowing in verse 12 is we're just allowing the result of his energy being worked in us. Yeah. So if God is at work in us. And, and I love this. I love this. It's all God's power. It's not our own. And all of this works out for God's good pleasure. Those are the two assurances. It's all God's power, and it's really God's good pleasure. In other words, he is pleased when we give him the green light. When we say... I can't do this. Please do it for me. Do it in me. And what is the promise of verse 13? For it is God who works in you both to will and to do. In other words, to have the mind and the subsequent actions. To have the desire and the actual doing. And all of this is for his good pleasure. Man, maybe you've asked yourself, how do I please God? I just want to be more pleasing to God. Hey, it's not by how much we do for him. But it's by how much we let him do in us. Amen. He's pleased by that. <laughs> so those are two assurances. When you're seeking to become a servant, one, make it more than a show. Let God's salvation be worked out. And then in the process, cling to the assurance that it's his power and it's all for his pleasure. Paul wants to get a little bit more practical here because he gives us some traps to avoid. Okay? He gives us two assurances to cling to, but he also makes us aware that there are some ditches that you ought not to fall into in seeking to become a servant. Read it here in verse 14. It says, do all things, now in the context, these all things are probably in, related, in relation to all things to become a servant. But you can read this even more generally. Do all things without complaining and disputing. 
Oh, that's going to take a miracle, right? (laughs) I tell you what, these are two very specific traps that really undermine servanthood. I mean, can you really imagine yourself, uh, what is it, complaining and being a servant at the same time? Can you imagine yourself disputing and being a servant to the one that you're disputing? Let's talk about this, because uh, he uses these two words very intentionally. Complaining, the word there is... <laughs> I hope you're okay when I, like, when I describe these Greek words and stuff, because they're really actually kind of fun. Uh, so the word here is gogusmos. Can you try that one? Gogusmos. It's actually an onomatopoeia. You know what an onomatopoeia is? It's a, it's a literary term where the word is the sound of that. So when you say ring, ring... That's an onomatopoeia. Right, right, right. When you say pow, that's an onomatopoeia. When you say gagusmos, that's an onomatopoeia for a grumbling. That's what it is. Okay? Anyways, the complaining word here is supposed to, it's, it's that under the radar sort of dissonance. It's the kind of complaining that happens even while you're smiling at the person. <laughs> It's possible, sadly enough, right? (laughs) And here's the thing. Paul is saying we can't have the mind of service toward others when we're grumbling about them under our breath. That kind of complaining, it undoes, it erodes any attempt of ours to genuinely esteem others as better than ourselves. And then he says, do all things without complaining and disputing. Disputing is the more visible, the more vocal, the more audible side of the tensions. It's more noticeable. Those things that... (laughs) The word itself, it it emphasizes the intellectual dynamics of most of our tensions. And really, when we indulge arguments against people, we're not just arguing their ideas, we're actually arguing them... This may not be your intent, but some, what ends up happening is when we doubt other people's ideas, we actually doubt them. And again, this undermines our ability to esteem others as better than ourselves. And maybe you're thinking to yourself, ah, that's just my personality, you know, to kind of be confrontational and things. Sure, that's very possible. <laughs> But if it is, don't let your personality be an excuse for pride, please. Friends, are there ways to differ in opinion and still serve others? Yes, there has to be, okay? Social media is teaching us that we cannot be friends if we have differences of of opinions. No, 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 no. We can be of different opinions and still not tear each other down. The body of Christ can do better than this world. And so how do we do that? I believe it's by giving humble feedback in an appropriate time, in appropriate settings, right? Giving humble feedback with an intent to build the other up and not tear the other down. And that's what we see in the life of Christ. 
Man, when you, when you see him or read those stories of him, you know, speaking straight to some people that needed some correction, and you hear tears in his voice. He is not lambasting people, trying to tear them down. No, he is trying to work for their salvation. I think we can admit that complaining and disputing the the, the silent type and the not-so-silent type, these come naturally to us. That's kind of our default. But when God is at work in us to will and to do of his good pleasure, and he leads us to unlearn, to unlearn these interpersonal death traps, if you will. How many of you want that today? Yeah, please, for the sake of my family, please. For the sake of, of, of my work relationships, not just so that we can have better success and outcomes in work, but so that, so that Jesus can be glorified in the workplace. For the sake of the body of Christ. Yeah? So a simple question here at the end of this kind of a study, we're, we're talking about, how to become a servant, having this mind, this, this joy of servanthood. The reality is it requires conversion. And so today, will you let God work out his salvation in you? Yeah? Amen. Is that your just amen? Amen. I tell you what, when, when, when we do that, there are some beautiful results that happen. And I want to finish this off here with verse 15. Verse 14 starts the sentence. Verse 15 finishes it with kind of a picture, this hoped-for picture. Do all things, verse 14 says, do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God, without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Whoa. (laughs) You hear what Paul is saying? Do you see what happens when God recreates us? When he recreates in us, works in us, to will and to do of his good pleasure, where, where the mind of servanthood actually becomes your mind, where the mind of servanthood actually results in a joy of servanthood. Do you see what happens? We become children of God. Our identity is not based upon how much we can do or who is doing something for me. No, our identity is that we belong to God. And our righteousness, oh man, it's, it's not to be questioned. But I love this picture of, uh, at the end of verse 15. Among whom you shine as lights in the world. Man. In other words, when we let salvation be worked out to its full end to create in us the mind of Christ. And when we begin to operate in an other-centered rather than self-centered manner, we will shine brightly like stars in a dark night. And friends, this world is experiencing a very dark night. Your world may be experiencing a very dark night. And God is calling you to shine like a star. Helping people navigate, oh, this is the way home. Yeah? I mean, some of you Navy men know what I'm talking about, right? When you're in a stormy sea and you have no idea how to get to land, you look to the stars for help. 
Friends, this is a crooked and perverse generation, just like Paul is describing. And when we allow the mind of servanthood to be lived out in us, when the work of God's salvation is worked out in how we will and also how we work, we become like shines, uh, shining stars in a dark night. I long for that today. How many of you? Yeah? I long for that. And again, we can't do that ourselves. We can't do that ourselves. And so, uh, in closing, I wanted to share a song with you. It's called, Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me.